Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Coming up on this month's show, Hannah's going to be taking us through the ins and outs of scuba diving, but on alien worlds. Andrew's going to be talking to special guest Russ Belikov about direct imaging and Alpha Centauri. And I'm going to be going through all the latest exoplanetary news from the last month. Um, But first, let's meet the exocasters. So I'm Hugh Osborne, and I am a postdoc at the Laboratoire of Astrophysique de Marseille in France, obviously. I'm Hannah Wakeford. I'm Giacconi Fellow at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore in the US. And I'm Andrew Rushby. I'm a postdoc at NASA's Ames Research Center in Northern California, also in the US. So, Hugh, you're actually joining us in the middle of an observing run. It's the middle of the night there in in France. Could you tell us what's happening? This is like live astronomy. We never get live astronomy on our podcast. So this is actually happening right now. This is as live as live astronomy can be. And I can tell you the current conditions are no stars visible at all. So... uh so that's that's your typical observing run in uh, <laughs> <laughs> well maybe not that typical where it depends you? where you are. I think the weather here in in France is, so I'm in the Observatoire de Haute Provence which is in southern France. Uh, slightly worse weather here than in Chile or somewhere like that or Hawaii, but um, but good enough weather I should add to detect the first exoplanet. So 51 peg if that is your opinion as of as to what the first exoplanet is was discovered in this control room uh, 20 uh, 25 years ago now, I guess. Um, 23 years ago? 23. 23. Well, that's when it was announced. Depends, because did they discover it when they got the data uh, in, or did they discover well, it when they published it? that's a good question. It? When did they get the data yeah, in? Yeah, I don't know. I'll check the logs, you know. Either way, a see. lot of history at that desk. Um, and will you be making history with your observations tonight, Hugh? I don't think I'll get any, so... How um, long are you there for? No. <laughs> Well, only two nights, so it's fine. I think, if anything, two nights is the worst length of run because you don't get into the the swing of it. You don't ever get adjusted to night shifts. So I'm just going to be knackered for two nights, but uh, hopefully I'll survive. If, if it's cloudy, I get to sleep earlier, so I've got that at least. <laughs> what have you been up to, Hannah? Uh, I was travelling around the UK a little bit after our last uh, recording down at the UK Exoplanet Meeting. I went then up to the European Week of Astronomy and Space Science in Liverpool. Had a oh, yeah. had a good it? week up there. Just a huge community of people across the whole of Europe. And it was really great to catch up with everybody, not just in exoplanets, but uh, I was also presenting in the James Webb sessions and discussing all of the implications from that move and stuff. So last time we talked, the James Webb Space Telescope uh, call for proposals was scheduled two weeks later and that actually got postponed because the telescope has now been postponed to launch in 2020 instead of 2019 so that whole year delay on those proposals so we were discussing that and the implications and the fact that you know science is still going to keep going we have a lot more time to prepare as a community we have a lot more time to try and understand what kind of observations we want the telescope to be doing so really it's just uh, given us that that little extra time that we uh, quite a few of us felt like we needed to really understand what it is that we want to do and really direct our goals. You sound like you're spinning that quite well because a lot of the astronomers I spoke to were really annoyed that NASA, who probably knew for a long time that it wasn't going to be ready, waited till a few days before the deadline when everyone's been working super hard and then turned around and said, actually, guys, next year, maybe next year. Isn't that isn't that about, isn't isn't that an awful thing? I don't know. I don't know. I'm quite happy with the spin that I've managed to put in my head. I'm going to keep <laughs> it that way. If I can keep myself in a very positive frame of mind, I think it's a very good thing. I don't know that looking at it yeah. in a negative way is actually helpful. So, I mean, there was definitely a good week where I just felt very lost. And there was a week when I came back where I felt very lost. And, like, I hadn't didn't have these deadlines I was working to. I had to recalibrate what I was doing. But... You have to just look at things in a positive way so you can get up and get on with them. Looking at things in a negative way is not going to help you do better science. It's just going to make you angry. So I think it's a much better way of looking at it. And that does give us more time. And it does mean that we can actually really refine what it is that we're asking and those questions that we want answered. 
That's true. That's a very positive way to put it's on. Very wholesome. Uh, yeah. Hannah, I was just wondering, is it is this actually going to change any of the observations? Do you think? Um, are you just going to put a different date on so your proposal? So this next year? Uh, can potentially change some of the solar system observations. Solar system observations are pointing limited, so because they're so close, they move a lot quicker. And they have a lot more restrictions on the timing in which you can see different objects based uh, on James Webb's pointing. So those are some potential changes uh, for the ERS programs uh, and GTO programs. The idea, and we, we had an all-hands meeting here at Space Telescope, is that it's not going to change a huge amount to a lot of things. And because it's an exact year delay, as far as we know right now, it means that the exoplanet timings don't actually change. It's just a whole year offset. So that's the kind of it's it's going to be fairly similar targets for everybody. There are a couple of things we were working on that get completely destroyed, but we're over it. We hit our Zen point and we're good. Right. Now we go back to California and Andrew's got in the studio or no, no it's not in a studio in his old office. He has Russ Belikov who is there. So how's it going? Yes, uh, so Russ is an astrophysicist here at Ames, uh, the head of the uh, Ames Coronagraph Experiment Research Group. Um, so thanks for being here, Russ. Thanks Thank for you. joining us on the show. It's great to have you. Um, so from that intro, I guess uh, our listeners can probably tell that you're a, a direct imager or someone who looks at direct imaging of exoplanets, which is something that we've discussed at length, mainly with our special guests. Actually, we had last month, we had Jane, um, and we've also had Sasha before. Um, and... Uh, you know, we talk about it a lot, but many of the planets that we discuss actually aren't found through direct imaging because it has this suite of very unique difficulties and challenges. Where does your research fit into those challenges? And uh, right. Well, um, so uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I've uh, I want to say that I love Exocast. I've listened to every episode. I think you guys are doing a great service. Uh, you know, for both for outreach and for um, the professional community as well. Uh, oh, thanks, Russ. Number best one. Best guest, yes. Right, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, I'm I'm also glad that y you guys are um, inviting instrumentalists because I I feel that uh, our community would be um, uh, better served if instrumentalists and scientists had more interactions. Um, so uh, I know you had Sasha Hinckley um, on on your as a guest before. So uh, another kind of direct imaging instrumentalist slash scientist. And um, I'm happy to uh, represent instrumentalists uh, one, once again, at least the direct imaging ones. Yeah. Um, so as far as um, my my research, uh, as uh, as Andrew said, um, I'm I'm leading a uh, research group here at NASA Ames. Uh, actually, our name now is the Exoplanet Technologies Group, and we primarily uh, develop uh, coronography for direct imaging of planets. Uh, and uh, especially imaging potentially habitable planets uh, and supporting uh, pretty much all of the direct imaging missions that uh, NASA is planning, like WFIRST, LUFWAR, HEBEX, and uh, a um, kind of homebrewed mission th that uh, we've designed here called uh, ASAT or Alpha Centauri Exoplanet uh, Satellite. Our two main uh, projects right now are to develop the PSCMC coronagraph, uh, and uh, if you uh, if you have listeners uh, who don't know what a coronagraph is, it's an instrument that you put on a telescope to block a star so you can see planets around it. Uh, and we're developing this special coronagraph called uh, PSCMC, which stands for Phase Induced Amplitude Optimization Complex Mask Coronagraph. So it's a very complicated acronym. Uh, this is a coronagraph that was originally conceived by Olivier Guillaume, uh, and uh, we're developing it here. And uh, its uh, main feature is that it can get you almost to um, close to 100% throughput and close to the diffraction limit of your telescope, uh, at least in theory. And so uh, this would potentially multiply the science yield of most direct imaging missions. So there's a high uh, motivation for for developing it, if we and if we can raise the uh, maturity level of the technology, I think it would be great for all of the direct imaging missions. The second technology that that we're focusing on right now is something called multi-star wavefront control, and this is a technology to uh, directly image planets around binary star systems, uh, and more generally multi-star systems. You can have more than two stars. 
which is important because uh, binary stars, or, or most sun-like stars at least, belong to binary star systems. And yet, uh, most uh, uh, coronagraph designs uh, are for single star systems. And some of the juiciest stars belong to multi-star systems. And so if we can figure out how to directly image planets in binary star systems, that again will uh, increase the science yield of most direct imaging missions. That's interesting there. Actually, a couple of things I want to pick up. You mentioned um, the binary stars, mm -hmm. of course, and also a rather ambitious homebrewed project. Yes. That I just want to focus on very quickly because it leads quite well there. Sure. Um, the reason uh, it does so is because you want to image a very, very nearby binary star with a very, very small satellite. Um, what can you tell us about that? What, what, what are the, the challenges involved in this very specific project? Yes. Uh, so uh, let me just say that uh, this is a concept that uh, we've co-developed uh, with Eduardo Bendek, um, who I, um, is a very close professional colleague of mine. Uh, and so a lot of the credit for developing that should go to him. Okay. Uh, and so this, uh, the concept that Andrew just mentioned uh, is, uh, I view it as a family of concepts. And uh, it's, uh, we, we, the formal proposal that we submitted uh, is called ASAT, Alpha Centauri Exoplanet Satellite. And we submitted this to uh, NASA's Small Explorer program in 2014. It didn't get selected, but uh, that's normal for NASA missions, <laughs> or for first, uh, yeah. you know, Kepler mission uh, got declined four times. So the concept is to directly, it's a small telescope, 45 centimeters in diameter, uh, which is designed to directly image Alpha Centauri and uh, capable of uh, being sensitive to potentially habitable planets there. Uh, and uh, so its unique feature is that uh, it's, it can potentially detect uh, habitable planets at a fraction of the cost of what you might think is needed to, to do this. Uh, and uh, the only uh, you know, it's only targeting one star, but if that star, you know, Alpha Centauri, but if that star has um, potentially habitable planets, then uh, we could directly image it uh, much earlier than you could do with uh, larger missions like uh, Louvoir and Habex. So that's quite interesting because it goes very much against the grain of the like, it's bigger is better when yes. it comes to space telescopes, you know, get as big as we can, even let's just build stuff out there on orbit to make yes. it as big as possible. This is going very much in the in the other direction. So where does the small sats uh, fit into exoplanet astrophysics? astrophysics? You think there's a there's a niche there? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I think it's a growing wedge uh, in, in astronomy and maybe a, um, a, a bit of a shift in mentality where um, most of us are used to astronomy missions as uh, and astronomy projects as surveys where you look at dozens or hundreds or thousands yeah. of stars and you build up your statistics and uh, try to do your science in, a, in survey mode. So Kepler was very much mm -hmm. like that. Louvoir and Hebex are also going to be surveys at TESS, like uh, absolutely. Um, but I think there's a growing um, science case for targeting individual star systems and doing deep searches on in individual star systems. And um, so this, uh, this makes sense for Alpha Centauri in particular because it's very much of an outlier compared to all, all the other sun-like stars. Uh, it is um, something like 2.5 times closer than the next sun-like star, uh, and I should say the next non-M dwarf star. Uh, and its habitable zone is on the order of one arc second. Um, so Alpha Centauri actually has two sun-like stars, mm -hmm. and each one of them has a habitable zone um, that's on the order of an arc second. And we're used to thinking of habitable zones as being like 100 milliarc seconds or 10 milliarc seconds. So this is an order of magnitude difference. And uh, so, um, so you can get away with uh, um, a lot lower cost concepts on Alpha Centauri yeah. than anything else. Basically, to, to whatever you can do on um, a you know, 4.5 meter telescope, 10 parsecs away, mm. which is similar to Hebex, you can do exactly the same thing 
uh, on Alpha Centauri, which is uh, about one parsec away, it's actually 1.3 parsecs, uh, with a telescope that's an order of magnitude smaller. So leading on from that, like we have eight meter telescopes already working on Earth. Why can't they be used to spot planets around Alpha Centauri in the same way? It, like, could it be done from the ground, not without going to space? Yeah, that is that is an excellent question. And um, so the ground, as you said, has larger telescopes than in space, and it's cheaper to build large telescope on the ground. So ground beats space in terms of resolution and in a working angle. Um, however, uh, it is much more challenging to get down to deep contrasts from the ground. And so... Um, on the ground, you uh, you know the best contrasts that you can achieve today from from state-of-the-art instruments are maybe something like ten to the seven. Depends on post-processing and polarimetry and all of that. So by by contrast, you mean how bright the star is compared to how bright the planet is. That Correct. Right? Yeah. But uh, and I should say instead of contrast, I should use the t the term flux ratio between the star and the planet. So so if you look at the space of potentially habitable planets. Uh, you, ha you can have them uh, around M dwarfs, like Proxima Centauri um, and Ross-128, uh, Trappist, Trappist yeah. uh, a bunch of others. Uh, and so um, that space of potentially habitable planets, um, the planet for, for that space of potentially habitable planets, the planet is much closer to the star than our Earth is to the sun. Uh, but because it's so much closer to the star, it subtends a uh, greater solid angle as viewed from the star. So, so it over, it intercepts a greater fraction of the star's flux. So therefore, the flux ratio of the star to planet is much easier for M dwarfs than for sun-like stars. And we're talking about something like 10 to the 8-ish contrast, maybe 10 to the 7 even. Uh, but uh, for... For sun-like stars, the flux ratio is between the star and an Earth uh, is about 10 billion, or 10 to the 10. And uh, something like that is very challenging to achieve from the ground, uh, and uh, it's mainly the domain of space. So, so it's a nice complementarity of space missions and uh, ground-based observatories, where in space, you have, uh, in, in theory at least, uh, a much easier time getting to 10 to the 10 contrasts than from the ground. But uh, working angle is challenging. So space is, you can think of space as optimized for Earth-like planets around sun-like stars. Whereas uh, from the ground, it's the opposite. You, contrasts are difficult, but working angles are easier. So ground-based telescopes are optimized for potentially out of planets around uh, um, smaller stars like M dwarfs, especially the 30 meter telescopes that are coming online in the 2020s. I think maybe this is the, the thing I don't understand about uh, ASAT, is because for me, for a big telescope, you get more photons and it feels like you should be able to go to fainter things because with an 8 meter telescope compared to a, a 30 centimeter telescope, you're getting so many more photons and more light from it. So, so why is it that going to space suddenly gives you this much better ability to pick out faint things around bright things? Well, um, the the ch the main challenge. So you, you're right, of course, that uh, you're going to get a lot more photons per second from a given planet uh, with a ground-based telescope than from from a space-based telescope. However, um, the uh, the main challenge here is not the photon flux, but it's the the leak from the star and uh, so you need to overcome the noise from the star to be able to get to those photons in the first place so from the ground even though you're getting orders of magnitude more photons per second from a given planet than from space uh, you are overwhelmed by the the glare and the diffraction from the star uh, which cancels out that advantage um, so um, Unless someone very clever figures out how to suppress stars to 10 to the 10 contrast from the ground, uh, it would be hard to take advantage of the, the greater flux. Um, greater so that's just flux. from the atmosphere, like scattering the light much more than in space. Is that why? 
Uh, right. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's uh, the, the main issue. Uh, the, yeah. There are also secondary issues like uh, you might have vibrations from the ground and um, and you have to track the uh, the star or, or cancel out the rotation from from the earth right well I thought that was a, a relatively nicely wrapped up so up next is Hannah to take us on a subaquatic expedition um, to scuba dive on alien worlds Yes, I will. Uh, And it's not going to be aquatic in exactly the same sense as what we have here on the Earth. Uh, As some of you might know, I'm a scuba diver. And a while ago, I was contemplating the question what it might be like to scuba dive on a different planet. So I wanted to go through it here as well on Exocast, especially as it is the Northern Hemisphere's dive season, which is starting up now and the sun started to come out. So everybody's time to get in the water. Now, I'm going to go through one example in a bit more detail that we have a decent amount of information on, and that is Titan. Titan is the largest moon of Saturn, and we've talked about it here on Exocast before. It also has the distinction in our solar system of being the most outwardly appearing Earth-like planet or moon, as it actually is beyond our own world. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a humongous number of qualities about it that makes it very un-Earth-like, but uh, it makes a good place for us to start when we're thinking about this scuba diving adventure we're about to go on. So just to give a bit of history, the first close-up images of Titan were actually taken by Pioneer spacecrafts in 79 and then later by Voyager 1 in 80 and Voyager 2 in 81. However, these just revealed that the moon was shrouded in a really thick haze and none of the onboard instruments were actually capable of penetrating that atmosphere to see the surface of the moon. It took the specifically designed uh, Cassini-Hudgens which reached Saturn in July of 2004 for the process of the mapping of the moon Titan to begin. And high resolution images were taken by Cassini while the probe actually made a landing on the surface of the moon. Now Cassini continued to make close flybys of the moon collecting radar imagery of the northern and southern poles and completing 127 flybys of the moon over its 13 year lifetime which is an amazing number. It's actually the most studied of all of the moons so far. Uh, and it was through these radar images that were, that were performed where you can see that there are bodies of liquid on the surface of Titan. However, the comparison between the Earth and Titan starts to break down here. These lakes and these seas are not actually made of water, but of liquid methane and other hydrocarbons. So it's a very different material than water is. In fact, there's no liquid water on Titan at all. It's not in the atmosphere. It would be on the surface or in rocks. So there might be water, but it's going to be in the crust of the moon itself. And this is due to primarily the fact that the moon is at minus 178 degrees C. So it's very, very cold. So anything would be frozen out. Now, like the Earth... Most of Titan's atmosphere consists of nitrogen, but the majority of the remaining material is not the oxygen that we breathe, but is actually methane. And that can actually have a methane cycle, like we have a water cycle. It evaporates, it condenses, it rains, it evaporates, it condenses, it rains, it gets absorbed, it gets photolysized, it goes through all of the standard processes we would expect. It's just not water in any way. Uh, and it's thought that the due to the lack of sunlight at the poles, the methane can accumulate in the seas and the lakes. So the lakes and the seas are seen primarily at the poles. However, in the summer seasons, it, there is intense rainstorms that have been hypothesized and actually kind of observed, which deposit a hundred times the volume of liquid in that area over a very short span of time. So these are very uh, monsoon-like seasons that occur on Titan at the poles. Now, the bodies of liquid on the surface of Titan make up about 2% of the total surface. And the largest seas are seen in the Northern Hemisphere. And they're named after mythical creatures, the largest of which is the Kraken Mare, which is a fantastic name, but unfortunately it is not filled with spiced rum. It is mostly ethane. 
So it's not a particularly nice place. But let's get on to this scuba diving that I told you we were going to do. So Titan is far smaller than the Earth, but standing on the surface in your scuba gear is not going to be an easy feat. Even though it's got decreased gravity, the atmosphere on Titan is much more dense than the Earth. So the surface pressure is actually 1.4 times that of the Earth. So it's not going to be very comfortable wearing your scuba gear. In fact, the atmosphere is actually dense enough that if you stuck Batman-like wings on yourself, you could, you could flap and fly around a little bit. So it's a much thicker atmosphere than what we're used to. And that sets our base... Those are actually the Titan concepts that I'm used to hearing about. The flapping Someone their wings. To, yeah, fly some, a glider through Titan. Exactly. Um, yeah. So this 1.4 times sets the base pressure that we're talking about. Now, the spectral images taken by Cassini show that the chemical composition of those lakes can vary, but most are formed of 75% ethane, 10% methane, and then 7% propane and a series of other heavier hydrocarbons, which likely don't dissolve at all and are actual solids that are in these lakes. And expected that due to the, the low gravity of the moon itself, that surface winds could actually form very easily on the tops of these lakes. But no evidence has actually been found of these waves themselves. So it's expected that it might be more viscous material than we ex that than was previously thought. So more tar-like, so thicker, more like a honey, gloopy material than like what we would see with water. So I would plan for very low visibility conditions in this situation and a little bit tougher swimming. Now, the two things that we really need to consider when it comes to the pressure for scuba diving is how deep can we go and how long can we go for? Now, these are both dictated by the human body. The human body is fragile in a number of respects. As we go deeper, your organs and lungs get compressed because they're mostly filled with empty space and water and air and whole host of other things. You're going to get an intense stomach ache if you go a bit too deep because your stomach is mostly empty. Your lungs will get smaller, so it's harder to breathe in that air, which is why when you go deeper, you actually normally breathe in pressurized air so that it's forced into your lungs. But another thing that is our biological limit is the ontake of nitrogen into our blood. Normally when we're breathing, we have an equilibrium situation where the amount of nitrogen that we take in equals the amount that we let out. So we're perfectly happy with that situation. As you go deeper, more of this nitrogen is forced into the bloodstream. And that's fine if you stay deep. But as you come up again, after you've finished at the bottom of your dive looking around, as you're coming up, you're not releasing that nitrogen at the same rate that you took it on. And those nitrogen bubbles that are in your blood can start to increase in size. And if you don't allow these bubbles to get out of your blood, they can start to become a problem. And when these reach joints and when these bubbles become so big that they can't escape from your blood vessels, it's called the bends or decompression illness, and it can be fatal. So what you need to do is you need to stay down at depth until at each point you equilibrate with the air that you're breathing in and then steadily go up again. So we need to control the depth that we can go to, the pressures that we as humans can experience and how long we need to be down there. So really what the question that I have for these alien worlds starting with Titan is how deep can we go? How high and how quickly does that pressure change compared to what we have here on the earth? Now, as I said, that it's the, the lakes are mostly found on the North and the South Poles. Now, on the South Pole, the Southern Hemisphere, they have very shallow lakes. The maximum depth seems to have been measured to around 7.4 meters in Ontario Lacus. So you'll be able to spend as long as you bloody well like down there. Have fun at your 7.4 meters, see what you can see. It's thought that there'll be a nice thick sludge layer so you might not actually get much more than a 7.4 meter sludge pit to go in but I have definitely been in worse in England 
In the Northern Hemisphere, however, these giant lakes, which are in some cases much bigger than the Great Lakes in the North Americas, they have some depths which exceed 160 meters. And I say that because that is as deep as the radar measurements have been able to go. So our limitation there is actually on the measurements that have been able to be done of these lakes. And given the long northern winters on Titan, it, it means that there's tons and tons of methane that's still around from that last rainfall. So it's expected that these lakes can be incredibly deep. Now, to do the calculation of how much pressure that's going to be, we just have to take the density of our liquid, the gravity of our planet or moon in this case, and then we need to work out the depth of the column above us. So in fact, if you want to double your atmospheric pressure on Titan from this 1.4 times the Earth to 2.9 times the Earth, you would have to go all the way down to 406 meters. And that's because the density of ethane and methane is so much less than that of seawater. In fact, it's far less than half that of seawater. So you can go so much further down and the gravity is so much lower. So although the atmosphere on the surface is, is more, that's your base pressure level. So doubling that by adding on columns of methane, liquid, ethane and methane, you have to go down 406 more meters. So basically, have fun. You can go as deep as you bloody well want. It's not going to be a big problem on Titan for that. You're, you're not going to have these pressure effects, which is the main thing we have to deal with here on Earth. But the, the caveats for Titan, you know, keep getting more and more. It's going to be complete low visibility dives. So as your instructor, I'm encouraging you to bring a torch or an infrared sensor would be great for this one. The lake is viscous, so you, I would recommend, because I'm lazy, a nice little dive scooter that you take with you. You can get these little scooters that pull you along. Now, you don't need to worry about the pressure, so stay down as long as you want. So as long as your, your tank will allow you. But you've got to remember that this temperature of liquid ethane and methane is under 90 degrees C, minus 90 degrees C. And that's colder than you might want to go in and I'm a wetsuit diver so it's definitely colder than I want to go in. I, what I would recommend here is a full face mask and I would also recommend a rebreather because any bubbles that you actually exhale are going to be at a temperature much closer to that of your internal lung temperature and those will boil the liquid around them as they escape from your mask and that's not going to be fun. In fact, that's going to be an incredibly dangerous situation you're putting yourself in there where you are instantaneously boiling away this ethane. So rebreather is really what you want. Now, I could stop there, but I went on and I thought, what about a more situation closer to what the goals of future space exploration are going to be? And that's these ice worlds. So could we explore subsurface oceans of something like Enceladus or Europa. Now, the gravity on both of these moons is a lot less because they're, they're smaller, um, but they come with a whole host of other issues on top of those caveats that I just mentioned. So I'm going to take a very, very brief look at Enceladus using everything we've just learned because we currently have a hell of a lot more information about Enceladus thanks to the Cassini mission. So Cassini's done a lot for our scuba diving adventure. Enceladus is the sixth largest moon of Saturn. It's predicted that the whole moon is covered in a varying thickness of ice sheet. And that ice sheet is somewhere between five and 60 kilometers at different points. Kilometers, vital part here. Now the thinnest points are predicted to be at the South Pole, which is something you might recognize as those images of these tiger stripe regions. And, and they stretch right across the surface at that South Pole. And that's probably your thinnest part. Now to get to that liquid ocean for our dive, we're first gonna need to get through all of that ice, far more than any drilling that we've done here on Earth. So that's, that's our first challenge. So we're gonna ignore that challenge. That's not a scuba diving challenge. That's our whole host of engineering challenges. But now we need to ask that question of this pressure again, and how much pressure is that ice overhead exerting on us 
So to make this calculation, we're going to have to make an assumption about the type of core that the planet has so that we can understand the density and the gravity. Uh, we need to make an assumption that we have standard ice and water. So if you had extra things in there, it would change the density of those materials and that would change the column uh, of material that you've got on top of you and therefore the pressure. So let's just assume everything's Earth-like densities um, just to make my life easier and make what I've got in front of me correct. Uh, and from this, we can then calculate what your seafloor pressure would be underneath this ice. And actually, it comes out to something between 26 to 45 bar, which is the equivalent of being 260 to 470 meters below the surface of the Earth oceans. So if you're on in the water on Earth, you'd have to go down to about 260 to 470 meters to feel the same amount of pressure you would under the ice sheets on these moons. Now, just to put this in context, the deepest a human has ever scuba dived is 318 meters, which required nine tanks of air and 14 hours of decompression to get that nitrogen out of the blood again. So that pesky nitrogen that I talked about before is really your limiting factor at such high pressures. And I haven't even gone into the other issues that Enceladus is going to give us, again, like Titan with the temperature. But instead of it being really cold in this water, it's actually probably going to be quite toasty, around 30 to 80 degrees from what I've, I've managed to find. It's kind of difficult to look that up and understand what those temperatures might be but it's from this geothermal energy that's allowing that water to be melted so it's actually going to be really quite hot there the pressures are going to be very high and i think it's safe to say that if you want to get the record for the deepest dive you should be heading to titan instead and probably avoid enceladus basically as your intrepid instructor on this crazy endeavor i would say that we have a lot of planning to do so i'm willing to get started if you are i just think the planetary protection stuff itself is going to take years to deal with hannah i'll leave that to you so andrew you're in charge of planetary protection okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a not fixable problem there oh. we we're drilling through that thick ice no that's that's super super interesting hannah just thinking about um the I guess what we're doing is thinking about surface water or kind of subterranean water on different worlds and that's or subterranean fluids and that's always interesting um especially as you were talking about titan just thinking back on it and thinking how familiar so many of those geological and almost hydrological features are to the earth i can see why people say it looks you know so similar um, yeah i mean it's an amazing issue, world yeah absolutely incredible um but I guess it's a practical issue is when you're in those fluids with the varying densities, which one is going to be easier to get around in? Um, to get to come up, to go down, to surface, so you just want to something, be in. You want something where you're buoyant, preferably, because you, you add mass to yourself and that's that's easy to do and then if you need to come back up again you want to be buoyant you want to be able to have that escape route whenever we're planning a dive we want to know where is our escape where is our exit from that dive site because there's a number of dive sites we go into where it's easy you jump off the side of a harbor you need to understand how you get out of there and if you have a buoyant fluid that means that you're able to at least make sure you're in a position where you are near the surface rather than something which is forcing you to sink. So you don't want to be expending all of your energy to come back up. So that kind of density is needed. Um, water's obviously perfect for that. And these more viscous ones will require a lot more effort to get down. And then you just have to make sure you're controlled in how you come back up to the surface and, and go back to that rest pressure again. So there's a number of things. Because the density will there. be to like shoot right back up. You do right? not want to shoot right back up because yeah. that's going to cause... Uh, a lot of your, well, your lungs will probably burst and your blood vessels, if you've acquired enough nitrogen bubbles in them, will probably start popping all over the place as well. You, you're not going to survive that. So you need this kind of balance between those two and the balance between how you can control your equipment. Okay, I think it is time for our international exoplanet news. Hugh, what have you got for us for the next three months? Um, I have a lot. I, I, we'll start with the the news from 
or well about space space missions in particular do you want the good or the bad news first guys bad news bad right yeah bad oh, oh you in agreement there okay well because then the well, good, we the good heard... news comes afterwards it's that nice soft right. cushion no, to land on yeah yeah it's a good good way of doing it um well you heard the the bad news in fact in the opening james webb has been delayed until at least 2020 and also the budget is very close to the to the limit that that senate sets um, I think now five years ago. So it looks like they'll have to go back to Congress and ask for for more money as well. So we hope that that doesn't kill James Webb, but it's so close to the final launch. They just need a, a testing and to iron out some issues um, that I can't really see it happening, but maybe that's just me being optimistic. No, okay. I think that's we, realistic. we think it won't happen. I, Here I, I think asked. that's a realistic estimate. Yeah, yeah. This is like lost lost cost fallacy that you think, oh well, I've already spent you know this amount of money. I might as well carry on doing it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how we got to this stage, I guess. Exactly, in the eight billion budget. Um, but yeah, that's 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 most of the bad news. And also, a little CubeSat went up to study Beta Pick. Beta Pick called a PicSat was looking for transiting material, and it just died. It was a little CubeSat, and they just lost contact. I think immediately. So, so some bad news in space. <laughs> But space is there hard, is some good news. People. Space yeah, is hard. Especially, yeah. Especially when it's done cheaply, I think. Um, but, yeah, so as we heard, WFIRST is back on the menu. It was reinstated into the NASA decadal budget. And there's also a brief paper on it, actually, on, on maybe on the archive, maybe published, um, on the microlensing campaign that it might do to discover uh, lots of cold exoplanets, enabling detections of up to seven of the eight solar system planets if they're around a star. That's W first saw uh, have a microlensing event. So yeah, so that's um, actually the last time I was we recorded an episode while I was at a telescope, which I checked was episode five B. I um, long time I talked ago. about W first. Yeah, that is a long time ago. Nineteen episodes. <clears throat> yeah, but I talked about W first then. So dig that out of the archives if you want to hear about all the, the microlensing stuff. It will find. Um, and the main good news in space was TESS, of course. Yay! So on the yeah, sorry that just after it snuck out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I agree. That's definitely how we're all feeling. It's, it's such a relief after because there's always a slight chance when you're sat atop thousands of tons of flammable liquid that something might go wrong, especially um, following Monday tests. when it was delayed and you know, exactly. I think due to a software problem. Is that right? Um, I'm not too sure. Um, there was there yeah. was various things I heard on the on the grapevine about what the reasons were. Um, basically, the fact that it was um, that it was launched just 48 hours later meant that it probably wasn't as significant as everyone initially yeah, thought. Probably pretty precautionary. Yeah. Um, and SpaceX managed to stick the landing too, capturing another Falcon 9 for for a, another mission, which is always fun to see. Although it's, lo- it's lost its sheen for me, you know. I've seen it 20 times already. You know. Wow. How. Um, <laughs> Three times is how many times you've seen it, Hugh. The attention span <laughs> nowadays is just... This thing, we're so spoiled. I'm just... We're so spoiled that we're bored of seeing reusable second stages landing on ferries in the Atlantic Ocean. That's our situation right now. absolutely insane. <laughs> it was... Okay, it was cool. It was cool. That right. Um, and there was also a paper on Tess out in the archive. Yeah, so this was an update on the number of planets Tess might find. Um and actually i talked about tests going harking back again in episode 21 if you want to hear a bit more about that but this this revised paper actually predicted down slightly the number of small planets it will find from um 300 to about 250 sub two earth radius planets almost all of which are around m dwarfs and was that because Um, of the optical the optics issues they had or just because they you know have a better handle on the performance of the telescope now yes the optics means that m dwarfs are harder because it's faint stars are a bit more smeared out, but um, I'm not sure if that's why the the revised number is is downwards. But read the paper to find out. Are these expected confirmed planets, or because that those ones also take a huge yeah, amount of follow up? Yeah, but they're around brighter stars. We we should be following up, especially the interesting ones, right? If there's if there's only 250 sub to Earth radius planets, but they're around very bright stars, we can actually do something with that. We can get the rvs of those those planets so yeah i imagine a large proportion of those will be characterized somewhat but um yeah so from space missions to exoplanet discoveries and we have another large collection which i'll 
run through. So there was a microlensing uh, planet found by the Ogle and NOAA survey. Um, it was a cold super-Earth, about nine Earth masses, orbiting an M-dwarf, um, uh, a 0.2 solar mass planet. But it's 20,000 light years away. So once again, uh, it's a pretty cool planet, but it's so far away, we're never going to see it again. Um, in radial velocities, we had a couple of interesting new discoveries. So Fabio-Feng et al. discovered uh, planets around Epsilon Indy, which is, you know, when you, when you go for these bright stars like RV surveys do, you get some cool names. Epsilon Indy, I like that. Um, which is a nearby K-type star, only 12 light years away. And it's orbited actually by a double brown dwarf um, at about 1500 AU. And these new me measurements spotted a signal from a 2.7 Jupiter mass planet on a 50-year orbit. So um, we actually have 25 years worth of data, and that was enough to confirm this as a planet rather than just a trend in that in that data. How it's, um, so it's so orbiting the stars, or it's orbiting the brown dwarfs, or it's orbiting the star. Okay. Yeah, and then the brown dwarfs are orbiting much further out. You okay. know, like 50 times further than Pluto, sort of thing. So, um, and maybe having a cold Jupiter at 12 AU is is a good candidate for Earth analog searches as well, because this is a bright star, and we know that. Um, our planetary system has a, a cold Jupiter, so maybe maybe that means there's an interesting terrestrial planet's interior to it, but we'll find out, I guess. Um, another RV, measure, RV planet from Harps was uh, the M-dwarf Gliese 15A, another, planet in, uh, another star in a binary system, which has a Neptune planet on a 20-year period around it, and it actually makes it the closest multiple planet system to, to Earth to date, at only 10 light years away, because it's got a short period super-Earth that was already known closer in around that star. Um, so that's quite a cool system. Moving to transits, there was a K2 planet in the Ruprecht 147 star cluster, which uh, it's actually quite difficult to find planets in star clusters just because there's so many nearby stars and it makes it tricky to figure out whether the signal's coming from the star you think it is. But they did a lot of work and managed to rule out the, a binary or anything else causing this signal and showed that there's a 2.5 Earth radius planet on a 14-day orbit around a very solar-like star in this star cluster that's about 3 billion years old. It's quite an interesting planet, that. Found by K2, I should say, by Jason E. Curtis et al. Um, there were three new WASP North planets, 151, 153, and 156, which are high-radius, low-mass worlds, so between 12% uh, and 40% the mass of Jupiter, which makes them ex excellent transmission spectroscopy candidates because they're so low density, these hot Jupiters. Um, there was a, a massive hot Jupiter around a solar-like star from Kelt, 22AB, um, pretty bog-standard hot Jupiter. Four new HAT planets, and I checked, these aren't the HAT planets that we reported the last three news items. You know, I, think. I was just checking this. Week. I was just checking <laughs> because <that. laughs> these ones are thirty-nine to forty-two. I think the problem is that the Hats planets are all so damn similar. <laughs> these are hot Jupiters, slightly more massive than uh, than than Jupiter, uh, transiting F-type stars that are really faint. So that's exactly the same as the last four times we reported Hat planets. But uh, um, and there was another interesting hot Jupiter, which was KPS-1b, which was a transiting or Jupiter, as I said, discovered around, uh, using an amateur camera. So an amateur went searching with 21 nights on a camera called the Roe Ackerman Smith Astrograph in Acton, M MA, is that Maine? Uh, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, that's pretty good. I mean, I thought the weather up there would be awful. Um, so yeah, found from Massachusetts, which was a, a one Jupiter radius, one Jupiter mass, hot Jupiter, that was confirmed by the very spectrograph I should be using if it wasn't for the clouds. Um, it's also important once we have a transiting planet to figure out what the mass of that planet might be because this tells us something about the density and tells us something about the composition. So there's been a few interesting papers in the last month about um, the, the masses of exoplanets, especially small exoplanets. So a planet, a, a paper I was involved in was a uh, K2229b and actually C and D as well, but we, we were most um, keen on B because it's a 1.16 Earth radius planet, so almost Earth-like, but it's on a 14-hour orbit, so it's very hot, and 120 HARPS radial velocities showed it to be 2.6 Earth masses with a pretty um, precise mass as well, which means we know the density is around 9 grams per centimetre cubed, which is a super heavy planet, a super dense planet, so we know that the core is probably around 75% the mass of that planet, 
which is much higher than Earth and even higher than, than Mercury. Uh, and, and we kind of called it a supermercury. So maybe it formed in the same way Mercury did, by losing its mantle, but we don't actually know yet. Uh, what about the other two planets, Hugh? Did you get... You, you said you weren't focusing on them, but did you get masses for them as well? Are they roughly the same density? No, so they're mini-Neptunes. We know their oh. masses are less than 20 Earth masses, and um, given they're about 2.5 Earth radii, they're probably, um, yeah, mini-Neptunes. So they might even be... Was the period of your observations just not long enough to capture that information, or they're just not they're not massive enough, and the star's pretty active as well, and the activity is about well, it's like twelve days or something, so it's kind of annoying to get rid of when the planet you're looking for is on a similar time frame. For the very short period objects, given the activity is a much longer duration, we can just remove it very easily. But yeah. right, can we do TTVs to get their masses? It might be reobserved by K two, but no, probably not. Okay. They're, they're very spread apart. They're not in a resonant chain, so they don't really perturb each other. There was a paper on Kepler 419, which is a, uh, a multi-planet system with a massive planet and an unseen TTV detected world on a much longer orbit, and using RVs from Hi-Rez and SOFI, um, plus the TTV and radii, uh, Almanara et al. clearly detect and constrain the masses of both of those giant planets, and that's quite interesting because it's a very faint but weird system because they're both sort of super Jupiter masses. So um, there was another Kepler planet with a with a mass measurement which was 1655b, um, which was a 2.2 Earth radius Kepler planet, and almost 100 RVs from Harps North this time managed to constrain the mass to be about five Earth masses, but only to two sigma, so five plus or minus 2.5 Earth masses, which might not seem like a good result, but it does show that Kepler is far or Kepler 16. 55b is far lower mass than you would expect for an Earth-like planet. So we know that it must be pretty gassy. It must be a mini-Neptune rather than a super-Earth. Um, and similarly, there was uh, mass measurements of K2555b, which um, Spitzer photometry was also used to constrain the orbit uh, after it was t detected by K2, and then RVs confirmed it to be a 44 Earth mass um, Super Neptune. I'm going to keep keep calling things super because I like it. Um, <laughs> so it's a 44 Earth mass, but four Earth radii. So exactly the same radius as Neptune, but more than double the mass, um, which is kind of an interesting uh, anomaly there, really. We don't know of many planets um, that massive, but that small in radius. And um, once you have masses and radii, you... you get a first order approximation of the composition of a planet but really you need more details detailed models to be able to tell what it's made of and that, this was something that Unterborn et al applied to the Trappist planets showing that there was a gradiented water ice from about more than 50% for the planets of F and G compared to less than 15% for the planets B and C which might have been a residual effect from the position of the snow line around that small M dwarf star and possibly the, those water-rich planets might even be too water-rich for life, except by the time this planet was, this paper was refereed and published, which was a nine-month process in this case, those masses had been completely superseded by a far superior paper with better TTV analysis that shows that those planets aren't water-rich at all. They are all consistent with rocky planets, except perhaps planet D, and certainly they're less wet than 50% of their mass. Um, so in some ways that, that paper was, was out of date before it was released, which is an unusual uh, new low for a nature paper, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> so okay, I, I guess it just comes down to an issue. It's kind of a victim of our own success in how, in how quick this field is moving. I guess that by the time you know, a characterization paper's out, the detection papers are already out of date. I mean, I think it's down to the, the the fact that these models are complicated. They're really hard to run. They're really hard to set up and and get your results yeah. such that they're robust. And if things are changing in the observation world, where we're making better and new measurements all the time, and we are, that makes it very difficult to kind of keep up with that. And I've been I've been saying this for a while now. We're hitting the data rich era for these mm -hmm. low hanging fruit exoplanets that we're looking at. We're going to have so much data that none of our models are fitting them. So we're going to be playing catch up for a really long time. And I think that's incredibly exciting. I don't think that's a detriment to the field at all. I think that's a really exciting period where we're going to be able to explore 
for decades to come these these new regimes where we're getting all of this data that we're going to have to try and explain and we're going to have to pick apart and we're going to have to build the physics up and break it down again and that's that's science that's the exciting part about it that's pretty much what russ touched on earlier as well you know he noted that a lot of the previous generation of telescopes the survey telescopes are now giving way to the more focused um you know study telescopes that, that we can use to really characterize and, 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 and get a better handle on those interesting candidates. Fresh on the heels of its first published exoplanets, Jackman et al. published an NGTS, Next Generation Transit Survey's first detection of flares. So two enormous super flares from a G-type star, each more than 1,000 times stronger than our sun's Carrington event, which, if you haven't heard of it, it's just a great Wikipedia page to read, to be fair. Um, and following last month's news of a millimeter... Uh, wavelength flare at Proxima Sen. Howard et al. found a super flare from... I keep saying super. <laughs> it's Super flare is in the title. <laughs> too many tabloids. Um, yeah, too many tabloids. Um, found a very bright flare from the... Ev- using the Everyscope All-Sky Survey, which which um, made Proxima, Proxima almost 40 times brighter than its normal level, meaning it reached about four, 6.8 in VMAG. Although from the title, the first naked super flare detected from Proxima Centauri, you might assume that this meant it was naked eye visible. But um, in a classic example of scientists who exaggerate the title to make it sound cool, almost every human eye on the planet wouldn't have been able to see it. So, <laughs> um, questionable use of naked eye there. Um, interesting as well, they, they did uh, simulations that showed that it would likely remove the entire ozone layer of an Earth-like Prox- Proxima B for around 50 years. And they also showed that these flares likely happen between once a month and once a decade. So if there is basically no ozone layer on There's no ozone. Yeah, no um, ozone whatsoever. Uh, it's just another, another nail in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the coffin of the Proxima planets in terms of their habitability, right? Yeah. Just paper after paper saying the star is just way too active, um, really to entertain much hope of life on, on these planets. Maybe in a few billion years' time it'll be a little bit quieter and a bit easier to, to have life around it. But for now, definitely yeah. not. Um, and some, some some other news. There was an interesting paper from Josiane Salama et al., who performed climate models at various day lengths for an Earth-like planet to see if the formation of reflective sea ice in the polar regions and the ice albedo feedback that we see here on Earth might disrupt the climates of these tidally locked or, or slowly rotating worlds. And they found that the sea ice expanded and cooled the surfaces of um, slowly rotating or tidally locked planets. So it's another another uh, theory theory paper that kind of puts doubt on some of these tidally locked M dwarf planets as to their habitability. Um, So validating planets is a a way that's been used to statistically or probabilistically say whether a transit signal comes from an exoplanet um, or not. So it's done by comparing transit signals with exoplanetary models and models of things that aren't planets such as binaries. And then we find the statistical likelihood that it's the former rather than the latter. And many of Kepler's interesting Earth-like worlds have been confirmed this way, including Kepler 452b, a 1.2 Earth radius planet on a 390 day period. So so rather like the Earth really, in, certainly in terms of orbital period. But in this paper by Fergal Mulally et al., which Hannah will definitely approve of, they pour scientific scorn onto this technique, showing how validation of these long-period planets is not enough to confirm them, nowhere near enough, in fact. And the main reason is that this validation assumes that the signal that we see is astrophysical, e.g. it's from something Kepler observed to dim, rather than from something in the instrument itself, some artefact that's causing this event to be detected. But actually, for for these long-period signals that Kepler found, such as that of 452, um, instrumental blips actually vastly outnumber real signals. In fact, their assessment of the reliability of Kepler signals at this period showed that only one in seven of these are real. So that means that a validated planet like Kepler 452b, which was claimed to have about a 99.7% chance of being a planet, actually has a planetary probability of about 16%, which is far, far too low to be ever validated. And interestingly, it seems that Kepler 452b is and many of the other unvalidated planets um, touched on by this paper will stay on the NASA Exoplanet Archive because they require more proof that it's not a planet than they require proof that it is a planet. So there's definitely some controversy brewing there, I think. Yeah, there is. And obviously this is this is kind of an inter-Kepler-K2 
fracture as well. Obviously, Fergal once working for K2. Um, however, the critiques I've heard about Fergal's paper is that he's assuming a mean, he's assuming an average uh, completeness and reliability. And actually, if you take it, again, I'm, I'm reporting second-hand critique here. If you, if you take the particular um, instrument that was used to observe Kepler-452 at the time, the, actual, the completeness is actually much higher than the average completeness that's reported. That gives that one in seven chance. But again, you know, I'm not, I'm not deep enough into the hardware-software um, you know, kind of environment to, to, to be very critical of it. Um, it illustrates the fact that, that, that science um, is uh, as much of an argument as a discussion sometimes. Uh, I guess, and that sometimes uh, you know a disagreement, as long as it's done civilly and in the in the literature, in the peer-reviewed literature, can really move things along forward. And if this is getting discussions about reliability and completeness, which has always been a bit of an issue uh, for Kepler, um, then then no, that's great. The the more the better. Uh, another couple of news: um, our occurrence rates as simple as ABC, and by ABC I mean, of course, approximate Bayesian computation which from the looks of it is not simple at all. Um, so <laughs> Sue et al. performed a global reanalysis of Kepler occurrence rates with this ABC method, um, which is a Bayesian way of inverting complex problems, which, like I say, I don't quite understand. But they find more small planets than previous occurrence rates found. And if I read the okay the abstract correctly, um, they, get, they give an eta Earth of 1.6, which is far oh. higher than any, any estimate I've seen from Kepler before. And in line with yeah, our solar system's like value... Stars or? Yes, with FGK stars, and it's in line roughly with our solar system's value of two. So, um, it, because of course Venus is an Earth-like planet, <laughs> of course. And in final Kepler news, there was a paper from Ayazawa et al., which looked for rings and the occurrence rates of um, circumplanetary rings around Kepler planet candidates. And they didn't really find many good candidates, but they were able to limit the. Um, the occurrence rate of rings larger than twice the planetary radius to about 15% from the Kepler data sample, which again is about right for our solar system. So uh, Kepler's finding lots of things that agree with, with what our mm. view of the world from our little blue dot. Yeah, but our solar system's weird. We often, t we often discuss that. But we don't things quite know how weird right it is until here. we compare yeah. it. Yeah, that's the whole point of these missions, right? Yeah. Figure out how weird the solar system is so we know whether we're special or not. <laughs> This month we get our special guest to adopt a planet, as as uh, as we do every month. So, do you have a favourite planet you want to bring into our family, Russ? Uh, I do, and this was a tough choice because uh, uh, Proxima Sand B would have been my my favourite choice, but I think you you already picked that one. Sorry. Uh, and uh, then uh, I was very sad to see Alpha Sand BB. Uh, be disproved, so that would have been my, my choice if that was uh, still on, on the table. Okay, so one was picked, one was disproved. Yes. <laughs> uh, then, uh, if, you, if you allowed fictional planets, it would have been Pandora. Well, it's it's a moon of, uh, you know, from from Avatar, also around Alpha Sen. Uh, and, but, uh, the, the, the uh, top acceptable planet for you guys, I think, would be Ross 128b. So, this is a re recently d discovered uh, potentially habitable planet around an M dwarf. Uh, so it's not around a sun-like star, but still a very nice planet. It's the second closest known exoplanet, I believe, um, beyond Proxima Sen B, uh, and uh, at 11 light years away. At least if you don't count Eps Airy B, which uh, some people think is, is not confirmed. Uh, by the way, I think it is telling that the two closest exoplanets, Proxima b and Ross 128b, are both potentially habitable. I think that speaks to uh, the fact that uh, small planets are more common than large planets. Oh, so sample bias. Yes. Uh, now, it does not transit, sadly, so it, we cannot uh, easily take its spectrum. Uh, but uh, we, we, we could directly image it or maybe do a phase curve or something like that. Uh, it's, it has a minimum mass of 1.35 uh, Earth uh, mass. Uh, that's its m sinai value because it was discovered by RV. Uh, and it orbits at 0 0.0496 AU with a period of 9.9 .9 days, which means it's tidally locked. 
uh, and uh, it's a little it receives a little bit more flux than the sun so it's expected to be a little bit hotter I think mm -hmm. it's uh, 1.38 um, of earth, earth uh, sunlight um, so uh, in terms of observing it uh, it's only 15 milliarc seconds from the star so that is quite challenging for a 30 meter telescope observing at one micron it would be a two lander with d so it's it's going to be quite challenging to to do that uh, but it's it's funny because i i um in in many talks i show a chart that shows hypothetical earth twins around every nearby star uh olivia guillon i think had the first idea to do that uh, and i think it's it's great to see you know uh, potentially have our planets uh, on a chart like that and um Prox uh, before Proxima b and Ross 128b uh, were discovered, I had Earth twins there for those two stars, and uh, in, indeed uh, they have planets similar to where I put the dots on, on that plot. Now I have hundreds of more dots there, and I'm hoping that most of those dots will actually end <laughs> up being bona fide planets, and we have a rich space to directly image and look for life around all of those planets think it's a fine choice yeah and if and if uh the news i covered um about proxima's flare um is anything to go by then maybe ross 128's earth-like planet is a better bet for life than than on proxima i i completely agree it's a quieter star than proxima so although yeah. 1.4 times you know incident flux is pretty pretty high i think we're looking at like something like 15 percent more incident flux on the earth for things getting pretty hairy when it comes yeah. to run runaway greenhouse events so 40 percent more flux it's yes. gonna it's gonna be an interesting environment yeah so. ab ab absolutely uh so it's uh, I believe it's outside the conventional habitable zone but still within the optimistic habitable sure. zone with with all the caveats and we're example. optimists on exocast are we i don't know <laughs> i think for tidally locked planets the uh, habitable zone may be extended because um you if, if you're on the cold side of the planet then uh, you know it it could be cold enough it could be yeah yep. it could be that's it's a, it's a complicated topic lots of you know conflicting studies about atmospheric transport yes. around the side what's going on with that terminator zone exactly. i think that's maybe something we should talk about in a future episode yes. actually um but anyway, thanks for the choice, Russ. That was a great, a great shout. Yeah, and I hope we can fill in all those other dots around nearby stars. And I hope that you can fill in one for Alpha Sen B and what Alpha A and B. Right. Well, a bumper crop of news, uh, a great interview with a special guest, some really cool discussions about scuba diving uh, on Titan and Enceladus. Um, so all that remains is to thank you so much for joining us uh, for this. Uh, installment of exocast uh, we'll return next month of course with some exciting discussion on everything uh, and anything exoplanet and hugh will even be talking to another special guest we'll find out who that is uh, next month i guess uh, until then you can check out all of our previous shows on our website exocast.org on itunes uh, follow us on twitter at exo underscore cast and of course like us on facebook you can always feel free to get in touch with us via any of those means if you'd like to appear on the show as a guest. Um, but until next time, bye. Bye. Thank you very much, guys. Bye. Exocast.